Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, brought to you by the Sportsman Channel. All hunting, all fishing, all the time. Contact your local network provider and ask about the Sportsman Channel today. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Christian Berg. Hello and welcome to another episode of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting. My name is editor Christian Berg and I'm happy that you've taken some time to listen to today's show. Today we have uh, the very first repeat guest on Bowhunting Radio. That is Dr. Grant Woods of Woods and Associates, one of the nation's foremost whitetail deer authorities. So Grant, congratulations. I bet you didn't even know you were the first two-timer we ever had on Bowhunting Radio. I am honored to be that. I certainly am. <laughs> well, we appreciate your time, and it's always good catching up with you. And the topic that we have today is something that I think, uh, you know, is going to be really chock full of useful information for pretty much anybody out there who hunts white-tailed deer. And when I was thinking about trying to put together an episode dealing with trail cameras and effective trail camera strategies, both pre-season and in-season, uh, Grant, you were the first guy that came to my mind because I know that there's probably not too many more people out there than yourself in terms of the way that you, you use those trail cameras, not just as uh, entertainment, but actually as real tools in terms of scouting and hunting. So uh, without further ado, why don't you just start out by giving me, you know, sort of your preseason lead up. You know, for most people listening to this episode, it's going to be sometime in early September. We've got about a month to go before the season starts, and we're all getting that itch to get out there and hunt. You know, we're starting to get that that hunting fever. What should we be doing with our trail cameras on our hunting properties for these next two to four weeks before hunting starts to give ourselves a jump start when opening day arrives? Boy, you know, I'm exactly that guy you just discussed. I, I think I'm the listener and the, and the guest at the same time today. We physically just moved our trail cameras from our, you know, what we call late summer survey, who's out there, how many deer do we have, how many bucks, how big are they, doe fawn, into scouting mode. And, and that's physically a shift in position uh, from over our, you know, our, our mineral stations or wherever we're trying to get as many deer as we can to now we're moving them to where we want to hunt. One difference I do that I think a lot of guys are catching on to is that when I move them, I'm not moving them to my tree stand location. I When I work on properties, I constantly see trail cameras strapped to or very near where guys going to put a tree stand. And we know that deer are highly conditionable, like Pavlov's dog. You know, remember Pavlov, he fed the dog at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, rang the bell for 60 days. On the 61st day, he just rang the bell but didn't feed the dog, and they salivated, and that was what was defined as animal conditioning. Mm -hmm. Whitetails, I believe, are just as conditionable as dogs are. So you put your trail camera, you know, right in that zone where you want to put your tree stand, and you're going in, if you're like most of us, every Saturday, once a week, to change cards, check batteries, whatever, you're conditioning deer to avoid that area during daylight hours. So what we do is put our trail cameras in this pre-season scouting mode. Deer right now across most of America are still in velvet, just getting the first reports of, of guys seeing some, some bucks that have shed their velvet. Uh, but they're still in bachelor groups. They're still kind of hanging out together. 
and they're coming to major food sources, especially right before dark or after dark. So what we do is on those fields or food plots, we take a 10-foot step ladder, literally, sounds like a lot of work, but it's not much, go to the edge of the field, get that camera up high, higher than normal, so we're missing a few deer in that detection zone right in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. It'll pick up out there 10 or 15 feet. But what we're doing is using the time-lapse. Almost all trail camera brands have a time-lapse feature. And we tell it for like the first two hours of sunrise in the morning, first two hours after sunrise, and a couple hours before dark in the afternoon to take a picture every five or ten minutes. You know, with digital cards, just delete them anyway. So what we're doing is now, instead of scouting 60 feet, give or take, depending on your, you know, sensitivity of your unit, we're scouting almost the whole field, even three, 400 yards away. So you're actually setting these cameras up on a tree right on the edge of a food source, basically. Yeah, where we usually where we can get to within 10 or 20 steps of the pickup. We're not walking away in the woods and finding that big oak tree that's dropping or whatever. And what we're doing is identifying who and where deer coming in. Now, deer 200 yards away on any trail camera, I don't care the brand, you zoom in, you still can't identify. You can usually tell whether it's a shooter or not a shooter, depending on your objectives. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's got a big blood, fuzzy spot on top of its head, that's antlers out there 200 yards or you can't see anything. And get the pattern. So what happens is when you use time-lapse at a distance like that, it's like your very best buddy. They tell you exactly where the deer are coming or going, they have zero disturbance to the deer. The deer never even look towards the camera. They don't lie, and they don't pirate your stand. Now, we call stand pirates, and I've got a bunch of buddies like this. I'm sure everybody does. That, you know, boy, I put all the work in. I hang the stand. You know, I get some guys I hunt with. I do all the work, and they know I'm going to be out of town or working next week, and so they hunt my stand while I'm out of town. That's what we call a stand pirate, that, that pirates your stand while you're out of town. Yeah, one of my buddies shot a nice buck out of one of my stands when I was doing that last fall. <laughs> But, I mean, he's not – I, I kind of told him he could go in there. So, does that, is he still a stand pirate or <laughs> – Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd blame him anyway. I no, like to – don't ever, a... don't ever go fishing with me, Grant, either, because I'm, I'm like a spot pirate. Like when you're oh, – yeah, yeah. you're on the creek and you start catching fish and all of a sudden you notice Chris is getting real close to your shoulder there and starts casting uh, into your hole. I know yeah. about that. So, putting these cameras up really high – and, and and using that time-lapse feature, that function, is a tremendous scouting tool, especially just pre-season. You know exactly. Now, that's not to say you go hunt that edge of the field, but you can see exactly where they're coming and going, slip in there in midday, 200 yards back, and we call this connecting the dots. So we've got multiple cameras out on multiple fields. We see where those shooter bucks are coming. We connect the dots and figure out, okay, he's coming in here every day. He's got to be bedded over here. The likely place is over here. He's traveling this way, whatever it is. And you connect the dots, and you go in and hang your stand one time. Don't go back, and then you go in for the kill. So basically, this, this strategy, Grant, is really predicated on identifying individual deer at two or more locations, because unless you have them... You know, if you have, in other words, a shooter buck that you want to target, if you get him out in the same field all the time, that's all well and good. But until you get him out in a second location, you can't connect those dots, right? Not necessarily. It's better to be able to connect the dots. But when I'm talking connect the dots, I'm talking mentally, okay, I know there's a bedding area thicket over here. And, And this buck is coming in this field about 300 yards away. We know from, you know, unless you're in... Milk River country or something where there's a definitive food source, an alfalfa field in the creek bottom, 
and they're bedding over here in the sagebrush thicket or whatever. If you're in the typical eastern hardwood scenario that most whitetail hunters hunt in, from you know from Kansas east, eastern Kansas east to the east coast, uh, this time of year that deer is going food cover, food cover, food cover. That's what's on his mind, mm-hmm. and it's easy if you know your and you know where the cover is. You know and you know the food source that deer is selected. You just get in between the two, and that's what I'm talking, mentally connecting the dots. And 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 once velvet sheds, those deer will change patterns, but they still will come to those major food sources most of the time, and that's when you start picking them up at three or four different food sources, and then you can use the cameras to help connect the dots too. Gotcha. So we're doing two things here. We're applying two principles that are critical for deer hunters. And I didn't come up with these. I'm not taking credit for them. I'm just regurgitating, basically. But one of them is MRI, most recent information, and you're getting that. You can check those cameras, like, say, five steps out, pick up. You're not disturbing anything, middle of the day, hopefully. And then MDE, minimal disturbance entry. You're not going in to where that stand is and checking that camera once a week. You're only going in for the kill. You're like a sniper. You're going in for the kill. And, and we use that very successfully. That's those are two principles that are the backbone of my whitetail hunting. And so, how many cameras do you need? I mean, just for folks who don't know, uh, Grant uh, lives uh, at a place that he calls the Proving Grounds. I believe it's fifteen hundred acres, more or less, right, Grant? In that's Missouri. correct. Yeah. And you're in the uh, in Missouri, and I I don't know now. Do you place a camera? sort of ideally on every food plot that you have there on the property? Do you put any, you know, in openings in the timber too? And and how many cameras do you want for every so many acres? Is there any kind of guidelines for that? Yeah, you know, that's budget driven. I don't have as many cameras as I would like. Uh, So I'm putting right now my cameras on the larger food sources where I can cover three, four or 500 yards at a time. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's certainly deer going in these smaller ones, but smaller food sources are great for a shot, harder to scout, harder to get to, usually without making a disturbance. Gotcha. So bigger food sources allow me to just scout more territory. Remember, it's just like your buddies and their binoculars watching, but there's no swirling wind, no scent, because it's just a camera sitting there day after day. So day after day after day, it's the same smell. Whatever smell and noise is associated with the camera, it's exactly the same. And deer get conditioned to that very easily because there's no danger to them associated with that. So, so and, and the second thing I do, mm-hmm. I'm, second okay. thing I do is like right. I'm in very southern Missouri, just just right by Branson, Missouri, way down. You know, I can see Arkansas out the window in the distance. I'm way, I'm not up where all the big deer are in the grain belt. Uh, there is no corn or soybeans except on my property for counties around me, literally. And by the way, to give those guys hope that you know live and not great deer country like I do. There's never been a Pope and Young or Boone and Crockett recorded in the counties I live in. County line splits my property. Never. Now, we produce several here. We're not recording, but never been one recorded. Mm. So you can take really poor land and apply a good food plot system with appropriate nutrition and let some bucks get some age on them by making sanctuaries and have what I call Iowa-quality hunting almost anywhere. It takes some work. But, you know, you can buy land for hundreds of dollars an acre in these less productive places versus thousands of dollars an acre in other places and still have good quality hunting if you're willing to put the sweat equity into it. Sure. 
So, so, so you've got these cameras out on your major feeding areas, and now mm-hmm. you've got say two to four weeks to go before the season. How much time do you want to gather data from these cameras before you then go in and set your stands, like you talked about? How how far in advance of opening day do you like to get in and place a stand and be ready to go come opening morning? You know, I like to place my stands out as far as I can. I, I don't leave my stands up all year long uh, because I use stands that have web belts, you know, or they're, they're not chain-on stands. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't want squirrels eating on them or UV hitting them. I want to take them down so I'll be safe next year. And there's everyone always has a couple of traditional places that, you know, boy, the first week of November, this is just a bottleneck and the bucks are running through here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and hang that stand now. But two things to remember is... If you leave a stand tight on a tree, especially a hardwood tree, you're going to kill that tree at some time in the future because trees do expand not only as they get older in years, but during the summer. If they're taking up a lot of moisture, they're expanding an inch or more in circumference. And if you got that stand strapped on there tri- tight, excuse me, you're, you're choking off the blood flow, so to speak. Mm. You know, the, the water going up and down. So we take them down because the last thing we want to do is kill a tree that's the ideal tree we want to put a tree stand in. You know how hard it is to find the exact perfect tree you really want to hang on. Yeah. So we do take them down. So some stands we're already putting up because we know from past years' experience that a certain time of year, deer are coming through here. We just hung our first stand as far as a new spot last week, to put the time frame in mind, we're in a severe drought here. We're 15 weeks without a major rainfall event. We're in a severe drought. Most of my creek is dry, just a couple puddles, and they're getting very small, like smaller than a pickup truck. And most of my ponds are dry. I have just enough water to keep deer on the property, and, and, and I'm to the point where I'm going to start hauling the water pretty soon if it doesn't rain, literally hauling the water to put in ponds. Mm. Uh, so water is an extremely limited resource. Now, one thing about a drought, it's tough on antler growth. It's fabulous for a hunter because now you have a very specific resource that they need every day located mm-hmm. every day and, you know when it's dry like this there's no moisture in the plants either mm-hmm. so deer have to go to freestanding water and i'll be hunting if it doesn't rain i'll be hunting whitetails like i hunt antelopes out west and i'm going to be hunting water spots for sure and knowing that that's a situation where i will put a trail camera over that water spot or the trail going to it very cautiously sneak in and out midday only to change those cards and batteries or whatever and identify which bucks are going to which water spots. So how do you change then, Grant, when the season actually opens? Do you continue to put your cameras over the major food sources or do you shift your trail camera usage in season as opposed to preseason? I I, I rarely put show cameras deep in the woods because it's so much disturbance for me to get in there and, and check them. So I, in season, once pressure gets on a little bit, these major food sources, deer are still coming to them, but mainly nocturnal. And I know that, but to me, that trade-off is good. Still, I'll connect those dots mentally as we discussed. Okay, they're here at night, they're here at night. Where, where are they in daylight hours? And I know from GPS studies on not this property, but other properties where we have GPS collars on deer that Deer tend to bed in, in the eastern United States about two to 300 yards from a food source. That's just a common theme we see over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm anticipating that deer being, you know, 
300 yards, give or take, from a food source. If I'm walking 200 yards in there to check a choke camera, I'm probably busted in that deer. Mm. So I want my choke cameras, again, where I can get to with the least disturbance, collect data, make mental assumptions where I need to hang my stand, and then go hang my stand. If I find a, a hot scrape or an acorn tree that's really dropping or a hot trail in the woods, everyone says, man, you ought to put a choke camera there. But that just means that's more trips for me to go in there and check that camera more likely I'm going to condition deer to avoid that area. How often do you check cameras in season? Obviously, you know, preseason it doesn't really matter. I mean, you could let a camera, you know, sit out for two or three weeks at a time and before checking it because you can sit down obviously and analyze all that data before you go out and hunt when the season's actually in and you may be looking for like you said you know that most recent information to maybe decide where you're going to hunt you know from day to day or even you know from morning to afternoon or whatever um you know how often are you checking that camera and uh, how does that influence where you'll actually choose to set up on any given day sure uh Two things. Uh, my program is usually once a week, but I keep cards and batteries in my truck that time of year. So if I'm passing by anyway, I'm disturbing here, I'm driving down that road or whatever, and it's a short walk off there, anytime I go by, I'm going to pull to get that MRI, most recent information. So at a minimum once a week, and and more frequently when I'm in that exact area. Gotcha. And, and, and you know, in the rut, I'm not, a, everyone likes to, loves to hunt the rut. And I want to hunt the rut if you invite me to hunt with you and we're going to your place or something like that. On my own land, I would much rather hunt the pre-rut or post-rut because that limited resource, I mean, all hunters really think about, you're trying to hunt a limited resource, a food source, a bedding area, something where you're you're bottlenecking or condensing deer activity to an area within bow range, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, the limited resource during the rut is a receptive doe. And it's really tough to know which those receptive, that's problem A, and problem B is the limited resource is moving. Unlike any other limited resource we hunters hunt, mm-hmm. a pond, a food source, a bedding area, the limited resource during the rut is moving. And and it's moving, so you think that gives you more odds because the deer is going to move in front of you, but it's uh, extremely unpredictable because those will have a pattern, you know, food cover, food cover, but the one that wants a date is now breaking that pattern. She's busted mm-hmm. off the normal pattern. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm what I call suitcase hunting, I want to hunt the rut because deer are on their feet more. If I'm home hunting, uh, I don't want to hunt the rut. I'm not as excited about the rut because I can't predict exactly where that mature buck's going to be. Yeah, because those are the deer that you watch all year round, and that's the time that you're least likely to pinpoint one at any given time, right? Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. You know, you've got... You've got, say, you've got, uh, you know, 10 shooter bucks on your property and you watch them, you know, 11 months out of the year, you can give me a pretty good guesstimate as to where they may be any given morning or afternoon. But that November time frame is kind of a crapshoot in terms of locating those home, those deer. Yeah, it's an extremely fun time to hunt because you're seeing deer move. Sure. It's a frustrating because old Bubba's not where you'd think he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um... So even during the season, you don't necessarily check cameras more than once a week. And uh, uh, what about, uh, you know, later in the season, even after the rut? Do you continue to use cameras uh, during the the post-rut and even into the wintertime? And if you do, 
what uh, what sort of purpose are those cameras serving you uh, from a hunting or just herd monitoring kind of perspective? Yeah, you know, really that's one of the absolute best times to use your cameras and, and one of the best times to hunt whitetails, except that there's usually less targets and that, you know, obviously some of the mature bucks, if that's your goal, have been harvested or wounded do fighting or whatever. There's just fewer numbers later in season. Everyday season progresses. There's a chance. There's less targets out there. And they're certainly more cagey or conditioned to avoiding hunters at that time. They've had a lot of practice now. On the other hand, in the late season, they get extremely predictable. You know, you know they're going to spend a lot of time bedded up because they've been pressured. And if you can find the entries to those bedding areas, boy, you've, you've written a good ticket for yourself. And they're going to food. Those bucks are tired. They are absolutely going to food probably at night. But they're going to start traveling to food before dark. And that's where that two to 300-yard buffer really pays off. You can figure that out. Have your cameras on those feeding areas. And you know which feeding areas they're using. And you see the entryway. You know which side of the field they're coming into day after day. And you think about, now, how would that buck come to that field back in their 200 yards? What's the bottleneck? What's the, you know a ridge or a creek crossing or a saddle? What is, where do I need to be? Because he's here at dark. Where do I need to be 30 minutes before dark? And, and late season is just an incredible time to harvest a mature buck. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, that's really interesting to hear how you use your cameras. Like you said, it's, it's probably a lot different than how most guys use their cameras. And it's even got me thinking because, you know, I, I have to plead guilty. I guess I, I, I do a bad thing because I have at least two camera locations that I like to use throughout the summer that are fairly close to, you know, productive stands that I hunt quite a bit in the fall. And, uh, you know, maybe I ought to reconsider that. So appreciate there, the there are guys that do it. Yeah. There's guys that do it successfully, but boy, they're really cautious on how they approach those cameras and just the more intrusion, especially to a mature buck that's used to avoiding that, the more intrusion you have, more likely you're to push him totally nocturnal or to avoid that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just got me thinking about it. And, and even, you know, kind of the same principle of, uh, you know, how often to hunt a stand, which I've kind of come a long way on myself, you know, in terms of it, I'm getting to the point now where I, I'm just not that interested in hunting certain stands during most of October anymore because that tends to be a fairly slow time you know that notorious Mm -hmm. October lull and it's Mm kind of like you know you're better off just staying current with your sleep some of those days in October and just saving up for November you know when when you're likely to see those animals during the day so like you say it's all about disturbance and how often you know can you get in and out of there even if you're careful before some of those deer are just gonna kind of write that area off and avoid it altogether sure sure so listen grant i know that uh if people are interested in sort of following along with your tactics at the proving grounds you produce Mm -hmm. you know some regular uh video updates throughout the year and i'm sure that as hunting season's coming up here you will be highlighting you know not only the management tactics but the hunting tactics maybe some of the trail camera tactics and techniques maybe even sharing some images of you know good deer that you're seeing on the property where can people kind of keep up with what you've got going this hunting season and maybe get additional you know information that they can employ uh, for their own benefit 
Kristen, you're exactly right. It's at growingdeer.tv, growingdeer.tv, and we produce a new episode every week, 52 weeks out a year. No repeat. So, in matter of fact, uh, I think it comes out every Monday morning. Every Monday morning it comes out. If you want an email alert that one come out, just sign up on there. We don't sell your email addresses or anything like that. And we'll just send you a little notice, hey, we just posted a new episode. Uh, and next week's will be our hit list. We have 20 bucks on the property right now that I consider shooters. Uh, we call a shooter four and a half years old or older. And those range from about 170 to 125 inches. Uh, and, and we've studied those with trail cameras. We're honing in on where they are. We're hanging stands for those deer, literally, as we speak. And, uh, and so next week we'll start showing those, those 20 bucks and following the progress of me trying to pattern using these techniques we just talked about and, and you know, come in contact uh, with my bow of one of those 20 bucks. So, you know, they're named. We know them. We, we know what they're doing. Some of them are, you know, several years old. And they've, they've faked us out for several years or avoided us. One of them's Methuselah. He's on his way downhill. Matter of fact, his name is, you know, Big Ten, but he's only an eight-pointer because he's getting so old he's losing. He's, he's winning the war for sure. Mm. So, well, that's exciting. So you'll actually, <clears throat> like you said, I mean, people can check out growingdeer.tv, see the hit list, and then when does hunting season actually start uh, in Missouri? September 15th, and, and, and the one thing about being in a really wicked drought is we can unequivocally pattern deer on water right now. So if it does not rain before September 15th, we, we expect some pretty good action. The negative of that is we, we really need rain so we can plant our fall food plots. I mean, it's just, you know, it's dust, dust, dust dry. No sense of putting a living seed out in that dust bowl right now. So I have mixed emotions. A, I don't want it to rain so I can pattern these deer. But for the health of the herd and, and hunting later this year, I really need some rain so I can plant some food plots. Well, one way or another, you'll make the best of uh, the cards that you're dealt, Grant. I have no doubt about that, and uh, you kind of got me interested in keeping tabs on you, too. So I'm going to check out that hit list next week and kind of drool over some of them whoppers that you have at the Proving Grounds. And uh, I wish you all the best in the season to come. And like you said, if you don't get any rain in the next couple of weeks, you may just punch your tags real early this year. You'll be seeing, uh, seeing video of us sitting over a water hole, that's for sure. Well, man, I, I appreciate it. I mean, this was the 30-some minutes here of very useful information. I think that, uh, like I said at the beginning, if there's guys out there getting ready for whitetail season, these are some pretty simple techniques with, you know, just a couple of trail cameras, two, three cameras. You can do an awful lot to help yourself out and you know, with the way technology has improved and prices have come down on these cameras, I don't know about you, Grant, but, you know, I don't want to push any brand in particular, but I have found that oftentimes the, the less expensive cameras, you know, even some of the models that are out there nowadays that cost under $100 for a good digital camera with an infrared flash can, can oftentimes take as good or even better pictures and performance than some of the higher-end models. So it doesn't have to be a real you know, budget buster to get some trail cameras and to employ them effectively in your hunting strategy. You know, get some units and have some fun. One thing about it, it certainly adds a very fun dimension for the whole family when it comes to using trail cameras and hunting. Well, thanks again for your time, Grant. I wish you all the best of success this season, and uh, 
hopefully at some point we'll get you on for a third time and, and you can tell us about the whoppers that you uh, put down there in Missouri this fall. That sounds great. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with editor Christian Burr. For more information on this and other topics, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.